You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis, and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 27, The Legend of Lodi. Thanks for joining me. We left off last time at the end of April, 1796. Napoleon was in the town of Carrasco, in Piedmont, in northwestern Italy. He and the army of Italy were flush with victory after a short, brilliant series of battles, which had brought Piedmont to its knees in just two weeks. The first Italian campaign had started better than even Napoleon had dared hope, but the campaign had only just begun. The Austrian forces in Italy, under General Johann Beaulieu, had been bloodied, but were far from beaten. Beaulieu still had nearly 30,000 men available for field operations, plus thousands more scattered around the region in garrison units. As Napoleon told his men in his proclamation to the army, quote, You have yet done nothing, for there still remains much to do, end quote. With Piedmont subdued, the next task that remained to be done was obvious. The conquest of Milan. The Duchy of Milan was centered on the city of Milan, which is about 140 kilometers east and slightly north of the Piedmontese capital of Turin. That's 86 miles. It also included a large swath of territory around the city, a region known as Lombardy. The Duke of Milan was none other than Francis II von Habsburg, Archduke of Austria and Holy Roman Emperor, among many other titles. This made Lombardy a de facto province of the Habsburg Empire. These types of political arrangements don't really exist in the modern world, and it can be kind of hard to wrap your head around for a modern person. But for our purposes, just think of the Duchy of Milan as part of Austrian territory. Lombardy was a huge, wealthy province, and the city of Milan was one of the most important cultural and economic centers in all of Italy, rivaled only by Rome and Naples. Within the Habsburg realms, it was the second most profitable tax base after Austria itself, and one of the major linchpins of Austrian power in northern Italy, which was traditionally part of the Habsburg sphere of influence. Milan was one of the brightest jewels in the Habsburg crown. They would not give it up without a fight. Immediately after the armistice with Piedmont, Napoleon had worried about an Austrian counterattack. 
he had pushed his army hard to reach Carrasco as quickly as possible, it was strung out along the road south, exhausted, disorganized, and vulnerable. However, it soon became clear that the Austrians were not massing for an attack, but for a retreat. They were in much worse shape than Napoleon realized. His battles against the Austrians in April had been relatively small-scale. Just as he had planned, the conquest of Piedmont had happened so fast, Beaulieu hadn't had time to concentrate his entire army to face the Army of Italy. So, Napoleon had only faced components of the Austrian force. There had never been the type of traditional, decisive, set-piece battle in which the two armies squared off to decide the campaign. However, the men of Beaulieu's army probably didn't feel like an undefeated force. Despite the lack of any single decisive battle, somewhere between 15 and 20% of the army had been killed, wounded, or captured in the space of about two weeks. Valuable supplies and equipment had been lost as well, including much of the artillery. The suddenness and totality of the French victory had shattered morale. As Beaulieu wrote in his official report back to Vienna, quote, the army is in a very bad situation, end quote. With Bonaparte's Army of Italy only a few days' march away, and clearly preparing to continue the offensive east, Beaulieu saw little choice but to retreat. He needed time to reinforce and rebuild his army. He also had strategic reasons to fall back. Beaulieu was determined to fight his next battle with Bonaparte from strong, well-prepared defensive positions. No more improvising and swinging half-blind at the French with only part of his army, as he had done in April. There was some reasonably sound logic behind this decision. Not to repeat myself, but Beaulieu was not a bad strategist or a bad general. Napoleon made a fool out of him and would do so again, but that's a testament to Bonaparte and to the Republican army, not a true measure of Beaulieu or the Habsburg forces. The Austrian strategy was very well suited to the region's terrain. Northern Italy is dominated by the mighty Po River. This region is mostly rocky hills and mountains. The only exception is a broad swath of flat, fertile land carved out by the Po. Most of the cities, people, farmland, and roads of northern Italy are concentrated within this river basin. It's the only terrain in the region through which troops can move quickly and easily. The only serious natural obstacles are the dozens of tributaries which flow down from the mountains, bisecting the plain on each bank of the Po in dozens of places. The valley follows the gentle curves of the river, which meanders west to east, from its headwaters in Piedmont to the Adriatic Sea, just south of the city of Venice. When Napoleon promised his troops that he would take them to the most fertile plains in the world, he was referencing the grasslands of the Po Valley. You might remember last episode when I talked about the geographical border crossed by the Army of Italy after the Battle of Mondovi. This is the border I'm talking about, between the Alpine foothills and the Po Valley. The task now facing Napoleon was to fight his way up this basin. Milan lies on the north side of the valley, roughly halfway between the Alps and the Po. There were two approaches to the city available to Napoleon, along the north bank of the Po or along the south bank. Each had its pros and cons. If he went the northern route, 
he would be able to advance without straying too far from his lines of supply. But Beaulieu's army controlled the north bank, and they would surely contest his crossing of several tributaries, which then stood between the army of Italy and Milan. If Napoleon went south, he would be able to move relatively freely, but would be leaving his flank exposed, and would have to find some way of crossing the mighty Po, with the Austrians in control of the far bank. Before this phase of the campaign even began, it seemed Napoleon had already made up his mind between these two options. The armistice of Carrasco contained a secret provision allowing the French passage over the Tardopio River at the town of Valenza. This was the first of the tributaries along the northern approach to Milan, and the logical crossing point for an offensive along the north bank. This provision was secret, but the Piedmontese court was swarming with Austrian spies, who reported this immediately to Beaulieu. Remember, he had been looking for a solid position to fight a defensive battle against Napoleon. With this intelligence, several obvious lines of defense presented themselves, in the form of the three tributaries that stood between the army of Italy and Milan, the Tordopio, the Agagno, and the Ticino. Beaulieu decided he would fortify all three. This maximized his opportunities to inflict losses on the French, but it also meant scattering his depleted army over a very wide area, where they would be separated from each other by the waterways. One of the main reasons for the coalition's defeat during the conquest of Piedmont was their inability to gather their widely scattered forces quickly enough to mount a concerted effort against the fast-moving army of Italy. The Austrians seem not to have learned from that mistake. Perhaps Beaulieu believed his intelligence advantage would tip the scales in his favor this time. But he and his staff should have spent a little more time analyzing the reports from their spies in Piedmont before making their plans. Beaulieu had formulated his entire strategy around that one provision of the armistice, granting Napoleon the right to cross the Tordopio at Valenza but no one had bothered to ask why that provision even existed. If you'll recall last time, the armistice already granted the French free passage over all of Piedmontese territory. Why would Napoleon want a second, redundant clause granting them access to one specific bridge at Valenza? It served an important purpose to Napoleon's plan, but not one that was immediately obvious. In fact, Napoleon was well aware that the details of the armistice would soon leak to Austria. He had no intention of crossing at Valenza, or even of taking the northern route to Milan. This provision was included as a ruse, and Beaulieu had bought it. The entire Austrian strategy for the next phase of the campaign was built on an illusion. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, 
It's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. River crossings were dangerous for an 18th century army. They could get very bloody if they were contested by even a small enemy force. Crossing by bridge meant the enemy could train all of his firepower on one very small area. Crossing by boat risked being attacked halfway through, with half the army caught on the wrong bank, helpless to stop their comrades from being pushed into the river. Armies with strong engineer corps carried materials with them to build temporary bridges. But the Army of Italy had started this campaign without enough muskets or shoes, so I'll let you guess whether or not the Directory had splurged on temporary bridging supplies. This ruse about Valenza was Napoleon's way of cutting the Gordian knot. If he could keep Beaulieu in the dark about his true intentions and move the army fast enough, they could race through the southern route and establish a bridgehead across the Po before the Austrians could stop them. Then there would be nothing standing between Napoleon and Milan but a few dozen miles of farmland. Beaulieu would have no choice but to give battle on open ground or retreat and give up the heart of Habsburg Italy. Napoleon was confident that in a straight-up fight, he could defeat and destroy Beaulieu's army before it had time to fall back over the next tributary. Napoleon would dispatch 10,000 men under General Serrier toward Valenza to maintain the fiction that the army would be crossing there. 9,000 men under General Messena would march east, hugging the south bank of the Po, where they might threaten to cross at any point, thus tying down the Austrian units stationed opposite of them on the north bank. The most important part of the plan would be racing as quickly as possible to Piacenza, a town on the south bank of the Po, about 70 kilometers, or 43 miles, from Milan, where there was a ferry service between the north and south banks of the river. With Beaulieu's attention focused on Serrier and Messena, Napoleon hoped to establish a bridgehead before the Austrians knew what hit them. Bonaparte explained his plan in a report to the Directory, quote, The Po is very large and difficult to pass over. My intention is to cross it as close as possible to Milan, so as to be faced with no further obstacles before I reach that capital. By doing so, I shall outflank the three lines of defense Beaulieu has prepared along the Agagno, the Terdopio, and the Ticino. End quote. Everything hinged on reaching Piacenza and getting a significant body of men over the river before the Austrians could move to stop him. And so, for this all-important mission, Napoleon assembled a temporary elite division of around 6,000 men from his best troops, what a modern military might refer to as a task force. He entrusted command to one of his most talented brigade leaders, Brigadier General Claude Dallemann. Dallemann was a veteran of the Royal Army. He was technically an aristocrat, but came from a particularly poor, obscure branch of a very minor noble family. The Dallemans were not much better off than peasants. Like many poor aristocratic families, generations of Dallemans men had relied on military service to keep the family afloat. Claude joined up as a teenager and fought with distinction in the American War of Independence, 
earning promotion to sergeant and getting himself wounded twice in the process. It was a promising way to start a military career, but when he returned to France, he found he had to wait in line for promotion behind less talented men who came from more eminent families. And so, Dalamon threw in his lot with the revolutionaries, who assigned him to the Army of Italy, where he finally found his talents rewarded, and eventually caught Bonaparte's eye. Napoleon put the army into action on May 4th, and everything went according to plan. Dalamon's task force marched over 50 miles, or 80 kilometers, to Piacenza in just two days. At around 9 in the morning on May 7th, 1796, Napoleon's new friend, Colonel Jean Lannes, stepped off a ferry boat onto the north bank of the Po. Behind him was the rest of Dalamon's attachment, to be followed soon after by a whole division, under General Amade La Harpe. Ahead of him was the city of Milan, protected by little more than 65 kilometers, or 40 miles, of open country. The Austrians had been outfoxed. Upon hearing news of the French crossing, Beaulieu ordered his entire army to abandon their defensive positions along the tributaries and attempt to form a perimeter around the French bridgehead. But it was already almost too late to put the genie back in the bottle. Night had nearly fallen by the time the Austrians were on the move. The next morning, Beaulieu put together an improvised assault on the bridgehead with whatever units he had available. If the Austrians could push the French back over the Po before the entire army of Italy had time to cross, they might still avert disaster. But this was a desperate move. Beaulieu could only concentrate around 6,000 men in the area. By the time he was ready to attack, over 10,000 Frenchmen had already made the crossing. Neither side was well prepared for a battle and the result was a series of confused, indecisive engagements. The largest of these occurred in the village of Fombio, which has lent its name to the battle. In the midst of the chaos, one of the French commanders, General La Harpe, was mistakenly shot by his own troops and killed instantly. Upon seeing their commander fall, and by their own hands no less, La Harpe's division began to waver. General Berthier, Napoleon's chief of staff, rode out with two brigades of reinforcements to take personal command. He rallied the troops and led a counterattack, which pushed the Austrians back, securing the bridgehead. On the tactical level, Fombio was a small, unremarkable battle, but strategically speaking, it was a disaster for Beaulieu. He had been hoodwinked, and now there was no chance of salvaging the situation. Napoleon wrote a report back to Paris, quote, we have at last crossed the Po. Beaulieu is shaken. He miscalculates, and continually falls into the snares I set for him. Perhaps he wishes to give battle, for he has audacity and energy, but not genius. End quote. Indeed, if Beaulieu were to offer battle at this point, it would have shown tremendously poor judgment. After failing to contain the French at Fombio, the Austrian army was in an incredibly dangerous position. Most of them were still spread out along the north bank of the Po, west of Milan. The army of Italy was concentrating in the Austrian rear, only a few days' march from cutting off their lines of retreat. If Beaulieu fought and lost, he would likely see his entire army destroyed. 
Obviously, Napoleon hoped he would be dumb enough to try it, but in the end, Beaulieu was left with little choice but to order the unthinkable. He ordered his army to fall back east, to put the Adda River between themselves and Bonaparte. Thus, the Austrians abandoned the city of Milan to the French. The uncoordinated assault by just 6,000 men at the Battle of Fombio would be the sum total of the Austrian attempts to defend one of the richest, most important cities in their empire. Phase two of Napoleon's offensive had been a complete success. Everything had gone according to plan. The imminent French occupation of Milan would be a strategic triumph for the Republic, on par with the capture of Amsterdam. Austria would be humiliated. And Bonaparte had achieved it with a bare minimum of casualties. In fact, he'd barely even fought a battle. But when he learned of Beaulieu's retreat, Napoleon was worried. The conquest of Milan had only been one of the objectives of this phase of the campaign. The second objective was to trap and destroy the Austrian field army, and to achieve that, he had been counting on Beaulieu fighting harder to defend the city, lingering on the western side of the Adda rather than immediately falling back. And so, Napoleon rushed to intercept the Austrians before they made good their escape. There was only one place near Milan where an army could cross the Adda quickly, the bridge at the town of Lodi. Both armies set Lodi as their objective, and the race began. On paper, the French were closer, but much of the army of Italy was still on the wrong side of the Po and its lead elements were still exhausted from their sprint to Piacenza and then the fighting at Fombio. The old-fashioned Austrian army was slower, but they were already on the move, and the prospect of being surrounded by the French probably added some spring to their steps. Once again, the army of Italy marched with punishing speed. There are about 25 kilometers, or 15 and a half miles, between Fombio and Lodi. They covered it in less than 24 hours. Not their fastest march of the campaign, but they did it while fighting running skirmishes with the Austrian rear guard. A force under Brigadier General Dalamon arrived at Lodi on the morning of May 10th, and found the town occupied by a sizable Austrian force under General Karl Sabatendorf, Beaulieu's most trusted subordinate. The French successfully stormed the town, once Lodi was secured, they proceeded immediately to the bridge, where they found an even larger Austrian force arrayed on the far bank, nearly 10,000 muskets and 14 cannon, all trained on a flimsy wooden bridge only about 12 meters or 40 feet wide. There could be no doubt that the Austrians had won the race to the Adda. In his haste, Beaulieu had been forced to leave behind valuable supplies and equipment even hundreds of sick and wounded soldiers. But he had gotten the bulk of his army across, leaving behind around 10,000 men under Sabatendorf to hold Napoleon at Lodi and cover the retreat. Sabatendorf had turned the eastern side of the bridge into a kill zone. There was no chance of Dalaman forcing a crossing, and so he waited for the rest of the army. Bonaparte and the headquarters staff arrived shortly, and by afternoon, much of Massena's division had joined them. They had covered nearly 100 miles in six days, or around 150 kilometers. 
While they waited for Messena's men to arrive and regroup after their march, Napoleon found himself, as always, seized by nervous energy. With no obvious outlet, he busied himself helping the artillery sight their guns, just as he had at Toulon. Normally, this was a job for leaders of the individual gun crews, sergeants and corporals, to be overseen by a junior officer. It would have been unusual to see anyone above the rank of captain involved with such an elementary task. Seeing General Bonaparte stoop over each of the thirty cannon at Lodi amused the men to a certain extent, but it was also seen as a testament to his exacting, unpretentious nature. Someone watching this scene coined the nickname the Little Corporal, which quickly caught on within the army and became one of the most popular and enduring of Napoleon's many sobriquets. Some historians have shed doubt on this story, but true or not, I think it gives you some sense of how Napoleon endeared himself to his troops. They saw General Bonaparte as demanding, and sometimes a bit ridiculous, but ultimately they respected him as someone who put his money where his mouth was, and kept even his most grandiose promises. But while his men smiled at their general's antics, Napoleon was quietly furious. The army had performed brilliantly, his opponent was humiliated, and one of the great capitals of Europe was within his grasp. But Bonaparte could only see the ways in which he and his army had fallen short. In his frustration, he could not bring himself to let the Austrians escape. He had planned on fighting a decisive battle during this phase of the campaign, and he was determined to make that happen, even if the conditions were unfavorable and it no longer served much strategic purpose. Probably to the surprise of his staff, Napoleon began drawing up a plan to fight Sebottendorf. He would return to a tactic that had proved reliable so far during the campaign. While the enemy was distracted by the main body of the army, a smaller mobile force would cut around the enemy flank to threaten their rear. At Lodi, this maneuver was entrusted to around 2,000 cavalry, under General Marc-Antoine de Beaumont. Beaumont was a high-born aristocrat, who had actually served as a page to Louis XVI before the Revolution. He was arrested during the Terror, but miraculously survived, despite the lack of any obvious political connections. Napoleon didn't rate him too highly as an officer, but after the death of General Stengel, he was left without a suitable cavalry commander and was forced to make do. Bonaparte ordered Beaumont north to find a place some sympathetic peasants had informed him was shallow enough for horses to cross the river. Then he would circle back and hit the enemy from the rear. He selected one of his best light infantry battalions to attack over the bridge, into Sabatendorf's kill zone. Obviously, kill zone sounds pretty ominous, but this wasn't a suicide mission. The French had a significant advantage in artillery, and, shielded by the river, they had been able to bring their guns very close to the Austrian lines. By the time the infantry attacked across the bridge, the Austrians would have spent several hours under merciless bombardment. And if Beaumont and his cavalry did their job, the enemy would be faced with a massively dangerous distraction, leaving the light infantry a perfect opportunity to press home the attack. It was a reasonably solid plan, 
but crossing a narrow bridge in the face of a hostile enemy was a dangerous proposition, no matter how you look at it. There was a lot that could go wrong. Sure enough, as evening approached, it became clear something indeed had gone wrong. Beaumont and his cavalry seemed to have disappeared. Perhaps they had made it over the river as planned, and had simply been unable to send word to Napoleon that they were in position. But they could have just as easily run into some misadventure along the way. Bonaparte had no way of knowing. With nightfall approaching, Napoleon had every reason to believe that his last chance to strike a blow against the Austrians would slip away as soon as the sun set. And so, just before six in the evening, he ordered the attack to commence, without word from Beaumont. It was an impetuous decision, born out of impatience and frustration. But, as the revolutionaries were fond of saying, ça ira, it'll work out. As was typical in the Republican armies, the officers delivered patriotic speeches to get the men psyched up for a difficult assault. Major Pierre-Louis Dupas was chosen to lead the column. He was a giant of a man, well over six feet tall, with a physique and a mustache to match. He had a reputation for aggressiveness and bravery. More than anyone else, it would be Dupas who held this force together. After the battle, he would receive a ceremonial sword from Napoleon for his bravery. The bridge was long and narrow, about 200 yards or 180 meters across, but only about 40 feet or 12 meters wide. The beginning of the assault would be relatively easy, especially with the troops pumped up with revolutionary fervor. The hard part would be maintaining the momentum over a long distance, once they got within musket range of the Austrians, and then pressing the charge home against concentrated enemy fire. The attack began around 6 p.m. With a roar, Dupas and his men burst out of the gates of Lodi and rushed the bridge. They made good progress until they were about halfway across the river, when Sabatendorf's artillery unleashed a devastating volley, killing or wounding most of the men in the front ranks. The column shuddered, then stopped. They didn't break, not yet anyway, but the attack was stalled, too shaken to advance, but too stubborn to retreat. They could not stay on the bridge. It was so narrow that only about a dozen men could actually fire on the enemy in front of them. Meanwhile, the long column of men snaking behind them was being raked by musket fire. They could fall back, or they could regain their courage and complete the assault. Sitting still was not an option, unless they all had a death wish. This would have been the perfect time for Beaumont to ride over the horizon and save the day, but there was still no sign of the cavalry. Napoleon's impatient assault was on the verge of disaster. If he wanted to salvage the day and save those men stranded on the bridge, Bonaparte would have to improvise. He cobbled together a force out of any troops available who were not too exhausted to fight and prepared to lead them onto the bridge himself. All of the senior officers present joined the column, Berthier, Messena, Dalamon, and Cervoni. Republican officers were expected to lead by example, and none of them batted an eye. The success of the attack now depended entirely on audacity and willpower. If the French troops saw their leaders in the front ranks, it might make the difference. 
There was no time now for another patriotic speech, so Napoleon simply shouted, Long live the Republic, picked up a tricolor flag, and sprinted for the bridge. The men ate it up and rushed after him. The sudden presence of these fresh reinforcements reinvigorated the assault. As the French pushed forward once again, they got close enough to the far bank for men to jump off the bridge and snipe at the Austrians from the shallows. Sabatendorf's men began to fall back as the French surged across the final few yards and onto the far bank, with Napoleon and his flag in the lead. Well, that's the story that would go down in history. In reality, Napoleon's aides had manhandled him away from the head of the column long before he reached the stalled first wave near the center of the bridge, only allowing him to rejoin the attack nearer the back of the assault column. In Napoleon's defense, he really did want to lead the attack himself, but no one on his staff wanted to explain to Paris why they had allowed their general to throw his life away in such a pointless stunt. Then again, perhaps he knew full well that his aides would never allow him to risk his life, and was only pantomiming a desire to get close to the action. Like a big talking drunk in a bar, calling for his friends to hold him back as he pretends he's about to throw a punch. Once the French had established a bridgehead on the far side of the river, more reinforcements began streaming across. The Austrian terrain advantage had been negated, and the fighting took on the character of a more traditional meeting engagement between two armies on open ground. General Sabatendorf had never really planned on fighting a major engagement at Lodi. His force had been left behind to deter a French crossing, not contest one. He'd planned on keeping his army in position for a day, just to delay Napoleon, then slipping away under the cover of darkness to join the retreat. Now that the French were across the bridge, this was shaping up to be a real battle, and Napoleon's force was nearly 50% larger, with more arriving by the hour. Sabatendorf did the prudent thing and began organizing a fighting retreat, hoping to disengage and link back up with Beaulieu before the situation escalated any further. So, of course, now that the crucial moment had passed and the tide of battle had turned in favor of the French, General Beaumont and his cavalry arrived at a gallop along Sabatendorf's northern flank. If they'd been only a few minutes earlier, the effect might have been devastating, but with the Austrians already in retreat, it was relatively easy for Sabatendorf to peel off a few battalions to hold them off. Fighting continued late into the evening, as the French harassed the retreating Austrians for miles before it got too dark to continue the pursuit. All told, the Army of Italy had lost around a thousand men, killed or wounded, mostly on the bridge. Sabatendorf lost over 3,000 killed or wounded, plus another 2,000 captured. Most of the Austrian casualties were suffered in their retreat. They had been forced to leave behind 14 pieces of artillery and their entire baggage train, including valuable supplies and equipment. Through sheer determination, Napoleon had managed to turn a pointless battle fought largely out of pique into a rather impressive victory. However, many military historians have criticized Bonaparte's conduct at Lodi as reckless, and it's easy to see why. 
there's little question that Napoleon's impatience and lust for glory colored his judgment. However, given the results, perhaps he was entirely correct to trust his instincts. Lodi would go down in history as the first of Napoleon's great victories. The scene of the young, long-haired General Bonaparte leading his men over the bridge, tricolor in hand, would soon become one of the most iconic and reproduced images of the whole Napoleonic era. As I hope I've demonstrated over the last 26 episodes, Bonaparte's story took a lot of formative twists and turns before we got to this point. But for the Napoleon of legend, that image that was projected by his regime and supporters, Lodi is usually presented as chapter one of the story. According to the legend, as he carried that flag over the bridge, sweeping the Austrians before him, achieving the impossible by sheer personal force of will, Napoleon had a kind of epiphany and understood that he was meant for great things, guided and protected by the power of destiny, which would carry him to unimaginable heights. Napoleon himself would repeat this line in his old age, almost as if he came to believe it. It's a very romantic story, but it can't survive even cursory scrutiny. For starters, we know that Napoleon was probably closer to the middle of the column, and thus relatively safe, not at the very front, shielded from Austrian bullets by the hand of fate. And it was an ugly battle, which the French very nearly lost, not some miraculous triumph. Second, is this the first time we've been talking about destiny and greatness on this show? Did Napoleon go into this battle as a humble servant of the Republic, only to be transformed into a man of destiny by a baptism of fire? Not even close. Battlefield glory and historical greatness had been an obsession for Napoleon since childhood, practically since he learned to read. As we've discussed at length, his interest in the great commanders of history evolved over time, from simple interest in their stories, to hero worship, and finally to dreams of someday joining their ranks. Napoleon was unnaturally self-confident, but it was only slowly, as his career progressed, that he came to seriously entertain the notion of realizing his wildest dreams, of surpassing Pasquale Paoli, even becoming a figure like Caesar or Alexander. So, if Lodi was a turning point, it was not a sudden eureka moment, as depicted in Bonapartist propaganda, but the culmination of a long, slow process, the moment at which things Napoleon had once only dared indulge as fantasy became fully cemented as practical ambitions. Like I said, you can't always trust what Napoleon later said about Lodi. Some of his recollections ring true, others sound more like he's deliberately propagating the myth. And, as is often the case with Bonaparte, he sometimes seems swept up in the legend of his own life, as if he actually believed his own propaganda. In exile on St. Helena, not long before his death, Napoleon would say of Lodi, quote, from that moment I foresaw what I might be. Already I felt the earth flee from beneath me, as if I were being carried into the sky. End quote. 
That, to me, sounds more like an old man past his prime, luxuriating in his own BS. To another one of his confidants on St. Helena, he would say, quote, It was only at the evening of Lodi that I believed myself a superior man, and that the ambition came to me of executing great things, that had so far been occupying my thoughts only as a fantastic dream. After Lodi, I no longer saw myself as a mere general, but as a man called upon to influence the destiny of a people. The idea occurred to me that I could well become a decisive actor on the political scene. End quote. Again, it seems like he's indulging in a little self-mythologizing. Think of how central politics has been to our story from the very beginning. Do you really think this is the first time General Vendemier, the author of The Separate Beaucaire, had thought of himself as a political actor? However, I think there is a grain of truth in there. Executing the great things that had so far been occupying my thoughts only as a fantastic dream. Which seems to me to imply that this wasn't the first time such thoughts had crossed Napoleon's mind, but rather when he truly came to believe they might actually come to pass. So, I think Lodi probably was a turning point in Bonaparte's character, but a much more subtle one than depicted in his propaganda. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Lodi came to be viewed as the iconic battle of the early phases of the first Italian campaign. But why? In a lot of ways, it's a perplexing choice. Strategically speaking, this was perhaps Bonaparte's sloppiest moment of the entire campaign. After a month of rigorously planned, carefully orchestrated maneuvers, Napoleon allowed his emotions to get the better of him, and threw away nearly a thousand of his men in a battle that served no greater purpose. However, his most brilliant moments were all anticlimaxes. You couldn't capture the public imagination with stories about how many battles Napoleon avoided through all of his clever ruses and maneuvering. People wanted to read about how well the Army of Italy could fight, not how fast it could march. The Battle of Lodi may not have been much from a strategic perspective, but it had all the drama and heroism the public looked for in a war story, especially if you were willing to stretch the truth as Napoleon and his allies were quite willing to do. And so, when it came time to write the propaganda narrative of the first Italian campaign, Lodi was featured prominently. 
Despite its obvious shortcomings as a showcase for Napoleon's courage and brilliance, Lodi has remained a seductive part of the Napoleonic myth. In 1887, the great English poet Thomas Hardy wrote a poem about visiting the battlefield. Quote, In the battle-breathing jingle of its forward-footing tune, I could see the armies mingle and the columns crushed and hewn. On that far-famed spot by Lodi, where Napoleon clove his way, to his fame, when like a god he bent the nations to his sway. Hence the tune came capering to me, while I traced the Rhone and the Po, nor could Milan's marvel woo me, from the spot and glamoured so. End quote. And that's coming from an Englishman. Count Karl von Clausewitz is regarded by many as the greatest military theorist of all time. He wrote extensive studies of many of Bonaparte's campaigns, including the First Italian Campaign. Even von Clausewitz was taken in by the myth of Lodi. He wrote, quote, There was no feat of arms which excited such amazement in Europe. End quote. So, how did the legend of this one relatively insignificant battle become so firmly entrenched in the public consciousness? In a word, propaganda. Napoleon and his allies trumpeted romantic accounts of the battle to the public. And once these stories hit Paris, the directory joined the chorus. They were still wary of Bonaparte and of his strategy, but the war effort was central to their popularity. They needed to keep feeding the public stories of Republican heroes and victories, no matter where they came from. On May 20th, 1796, just ten days after the battle, Lengthy reports on the action, written by both Napoleon and Salicetti, appeared in the Moniteur Universel, the de facto official newspaper of the Directory, and France's paper of record. Of course, both were written with an eye towards public relations rather than factual accuracy. From Napoleon's account, quote, Although we have had some very heated actions since the beginning of the campaign, None has approached the terrible crossing of the bridge at Lodi, the most brilliant victory of the entire war. End quote. As you can see, even at this early stage, Napoleon was not shy about self-promotion. Salicetti's version was even more flowery and dramatic. Quote, Once the column of Republican heroes had been formed, Bonaparte went along the ranks. His presence ignited the soldiers, and he was welcomed with thousands of cries of long live the Republic. He ordered the signal to charge sounded, and the troops, with the speed of lightning, threw themselves at the bridge. End quote. Of course, Napoleon was the star of the show in both accounts, but they each took care to name his subordinates and praise their heroism. As I've said before, Bonaparte rarely neglected to take care of his own. These eloquent, action-packed reports caused a sensation back in France. Public interest in Bonaparte and the Army of Italy had been growing over the preceding weeks, but the story of Lodi was a hit, like the breakout season of a television show with a small cult following. After the reports appeared in the Moniteur Universel, they were picked up by the other Parisian papers. Then they were reprinted all over France. 
Soon, foreign papers were translating them for their readers. Within a few months, the chattering classes as far away as Moscow and Lisbon were discussing the exploits of this exciting young French general. Napoleon was not the only commander who sent dispatches back to Paris. Quite the contrary, this practice was mandatory for all Republican generals. He wasn't the only one whose reports were published in the Moniteur Universel either. Again, this was a matter of routine. After a little prudent censorship, of course. What distinguished Napoleon's reports was that they were good. For most Republican generals, writing these official documents was a dull chore, another obnoxious imposition by the meddling politicians. Their reports were pretty much what you would expect from people with that attitude, dry and perfunctory, aimed at getting across any necessary practical information as quickly as possible. Bonaparte, on the contrary, wrote his official reports with obvious enthusiasm and writerly flair. He described the movements of his army as if the reader was actually watching them, not as the progress of pins on some map at army headquarters. He included quotations from the inspirational speeches he made to the troops, or at least claimed to have given, and took digressions to expound on patriotism and republican virtue. Out of all the Republic's army commanders, Bonaparte's alone wrote in an active rather than passive voice. He alone described the sights, sounds, and even feelings of his campaigns. It goes without saying, Bonaparte was moved to do this by more than a pure artistic appreciation for the medium of the official military report. As always, he had one eye on public opinion. To the other generals, these communications were purely utilitarian, for internal use only. The fact that they were published in the Moniteur was purely incidental, a minor annoyance, if they even thought about it at all. But to Napoleon, their primary importance was as an avenue of communication with the people of France. Normally, newspaper editors and journalists had to pick through the official dispatches to find a good story, read between the lines, take a little poetic license, and dress it all up with some florid prose to produce anything remotely interesting. Bonaparte's dispatches gave them something they could simply reprint, unedited, without disappointing their readers. Indeed, seeing the byline of General Bonaparte gave his reports on the first Italian campaign a sense of realism and official sanction that no Parisian scribbler could hope to equal. By the end of May 1796, the name Napoleon Bonaparte was fast becoming familiar to many ordinary French men and women, and it was a name they associated with heroism, patriotism, and above all, victory. In his youth, Napoleon had briefly harbored dreams of becoming a famous author. Ironically, through chasing his other ambitions, he had made himself one of the most talked-about writers in France. The Army of Italy was the smallest of France's major field armies, and the Italian front was generally regarded as the least important, both by the public and by the government. But within a few months of Bonaparte taking command, his reports dominated the headlines. Italy was rapidly coming to the forefront of the French public's understanding of the war. Salicetti was a big part of this innovative PR campaign, 
His reports often appeared alongside Bonaparte's, and his connections back in Paris helped ensure that they were reprinted. However, I think Napoleon himself was the prime mover here. Salicetti was a middling figure in French politics. Clever, sure, but nothing in his biography suggests he was some master of public opinion. In fact, he had the reputation of a behind-the-scenes operator, not some populist. And of course, we've already seen that Napoleon loved the spotlight, and had demonstrated an awareness of public opinion. I think there's also an obvious source of inspiration for these colorful dispatches in one of Napoleon's favorite books. Julius Caesar's Commentaries on the Gallic Wars were originally written in much the same manner for much the same purpose. Official reports from a foreign war created to win over public opinion in service of Caesar's political career. The Moniteur was not the only avenue for Napoleon's PR offensives. He also translated his report on Lodi into Italian and sent copies to the major Italian newspapers. Imagine that, a general translating an official document detailing his maneuvers, strategy, and the makeup of his army and sending it to foreign newspapers ahead of his own government. He was careful to discuss truly sensitive topics via personal letters to the directors, which would remain confidential. Bonaparte also commissioned a series of engravings of the battle at his own expense. Newspapers were often read out loud in public places, but in a world in which only a minority of people could read, images were just as important as the written word in the dissemination of ideas. These engravings were in production less than a week after the battle. They too would soon be copied, reproduced, and circulated all over Europe. By the end of the campaign, Bonaparte will have built his own impressive in-house propaganda machine within the Army of Italy. This was a force that would eventually peak at around 50,000 men, and within a year it would have no fewer than six internal newspapers and journals, or one for every 8,333 men, many of whom couldn't read. In most armies, the official newspaper was kind of like a modern company newsletter, with a little bit of Republican propaganda thrown in to remind the men what they were fighting for, and as a sometimes not-so-veiled plea to please refrain from overthrowing the government. Bonaparte turned his periodicals into full-blown PR outlets, pushing out stories he hoped would be picked up by the civilian press. By our standards, a lot of this propaganda was quite crude. For example, I think almost anyone today would suspect that a story that came from a magazine called The Journal of Bonaparte and Virtuous Men might have a slight pro-Napoleon bias. However, at the time, this was all groundbreaking stuff. During the Napoleonic era, most of Europe's ruling elite was just barely beginning to grapple with the idea that something called public opinion existed and had become a major force in the world. Not only had Napoleon fully internalized this new reality, he was a natural at manipulating it to his own ends. It would be nearly a decade before any of Napoleon's opponents even began to catch up and that includes rivals within France as well as foreign enemies. That's all for now. 
Next time, we'll see Napoleon finally enter Milan, his great prize. And we'll see him move on to face an even more daunting obstacle. Mantua, the great Austrian fortress city of northern Italy. We'll also take a look at the way the French were trying to export the revolution to northern Italy. Until then, thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.